Well, as Pastor Curtis said, just two more sermons in the book of Colossians, which we'll get us to on November 30th. Really excited for our Advent series for Sundays leading up to Christmas. But today, we will be looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. Now, many of your Bibles, if you are looking, you'll see a headline that's been added that says, Final Greetings. And we could be tempted to think that we're done with Paul's book at this point and stop. In other words, the purpose for which Paul has written this letter to the Colossians has been fulfilled in all of the previous verses that we have already looked at. And now, Paul just is ending or wrapping up his letter with some very personal things. And we might think personal and non-applicable to us. Just some greetings. So do we really need to read Paul's afterword or epilogue? Or can we just move on since we're through the body of this letter? And maybe you do that when you read one of these letters in the New Testament. Maybe you're also tempted in your own personal reading time to read through the book, but then once you get to all the hellos and goodbyes, you think, is it really necessary for me to read the hellos and, and goodbyes? I mean, I'm not Paul. I don't know these people. I'm really interested in the doctrine or the theology or the description of the experiences that he's having. So, do I really need to read Paul's epilogue? Is the Gospel really here in these final verses of the letter? Or are we going to have to sort of imagine it there and spend time sort of kind of silly pretending that there's more here than there really is? Because maybe you've heard sermons like that. And you think, you know, I'm just not seeing that or hearing that in this text. It could be difficult. So, a common place for that to take place is in a place like this, where you've just got the final personal words as the author wraps up his letter. So we don't want to import things right, to make it seem more significant than it is. Charles Spurgeon was famous for saying, because every sermon, Charles Spurgeon, who preached over like 10,000 sermons, and every sermon was about Christ. And he typically only chose one verse or part of one verse to preach a sermon from. Rarely would he choose more than one verse to preach a sermon from. And the sermon, wherever he was in his Bible, was always about Jesus. And people would say, I don't see Jesus in that verse. And so he was famously said, I would rather preach Christ where He isn't than miss Him where He is. So we don't necessarily want to do that and make this talk about Jesus if it doesn't or talk about the Gospel if it doesn't, but does this epilogue have something meaningful for us? Well, only the book of Romans, out of all Paul's letters, has a longer epilogue. Only the book of Romans has a longer one where there's this greeting and some final directions, maybe some final words of appreciation and encouragement. This is in Paul's letters. This one at the end of Colossians is a pretty long one. And there is, 
much here for us to learn. It is packed, actually, with helpful truth for us this morning. Honestly, I don't think I would be exaggerating if I said that I could faithfully preach at least six more sermons from these few verses that we're looking at today. We're not going to, but I mean that it's really, it's really packed with truth. So we don't have to import anything. Verses 7 through 14. Only one sermon, though, on these verses, though. So not seven, just one. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for gathering together your people this morning so that we could worship you. And so that we can now specifically be helped and encouraged and strengthened through the preaching of Your Word. So, we ask that You would send Your Holy Spirit in a mighty way to help us now understand these words which will only be discerned with His help. We hear this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, remember, from prison in Rome. That's where Paul is when he's writing this. He is in prison and he is awaiting trial Soon, actually, he is going to be released. And he's going to go on another one of his missionary journeys around this part of the world. It'll be his fourth one. So he will be free for a few years. And then he's going to wind up back in prison again. Then he will be convicted by the courts through trial of preaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, that's not something today that you can be convicted of in this country. But that day could come. But for Paul, that's what happened to him. He was convicted of preaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He was then declared, because of that, an enemy to the Roman Empire. He was executed. He was executed. So his imprisonment here is a foretaste for him of things to come. Now I suspect Here's Paul in prison writing this letter. I suspect that you find out who your real friends are when you are imprisoned. I suspect that if you get thrown in jail for any period of time, that you find out who your real friends are. I suspect that you discover among your Christian friends who really loves you and who really loves the Lord when you are imprisoned for preaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is dangerous for your friends to be involved with you. Because they could suffer the same fate as you. So I suspect that Paul is discovering as he is in prison who his true friends are. Who really loves him no matter what. And more importantly, who really loves the Lord no matter what. And their 
okay with the dangerous association with him, knowing that their fate could be the same as Paul's. So he's discovering something, and he's going to tell us about these friends. Do you remember Jesus' words in John chapter 16, verses 31 and 32? He said, Do you, to his disciples, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And then he says, Yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. What a wonderful verse for Christians when they're feeling lonely. Jesus says the hour has come, right? He knew it was going to happen when all of you, and He looks out at who? His closest friends. And He said, all of you are going to leave Me. Why? Because it's going to be dangerous to be associated with Him. All of you are going to leave Me. You're going to be scattered and I will be all alone. But then He finds encouragement, but I am not alone because the Father is still with Me. But all of you, He says to His closest friends, His disciples, you're going to Leave me alone. So it is comforting and empowering for Christ in John chapter 16 and for Paul and for us to know that God will never desert us no matter what happens in our friendships in this life. And some of you have had some very difficult experiences with friendships in this life. Friendships that you never thought, never thought would end and they've ended. People you never thought would forsake you. People you never thought would turn their back on you. People you never thought would leave you. And they have. So it's very encouraging, very comforting to hear Christ's words in John chapter 16. It's very comforting to know that that is Paul's ultimate security and encouragement. But, the truth of God never leaving doesn't necessarily lessen the sting when people leave us. It doesn't, it doesn't erase it. I mean, it, kind of, it comes on top of it and brings joy in it and alongside it and, and strength to get through it. But it's not like that knowing that God will never leave you. That doesn't erase the hurts that we experience when, when people leave us, when people forsake us. So in Paul's closing words here, he's, he's talking about these things, and we're going to see. We find, first of all, in these final words, illustrations of faithful friendship. In verses 7-14, through 14, we find, first of all, illustrations of faithful friendship. And we find, secondly, illustrations of the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So illustrations of faithful friendship we're going to see today. And illustrations, secondly, of the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So, think about those two things. This text is full of practical insight into what it means to live the Christian life in this world. One question we can ask ourselves as we read through is, do you have friends like this? Are you thankful for friends you have like this? Are you praying for friends like this? Or, uh, a safer question to ask, are you this kind of friend? Are you this kind of friend? 
Because if you don't have friends like this, you can grow discontent or unsettled or discouraged. So the safer question is, are you this kind of friend? And that should be our focus. You can't just make these kinds of friends happen. You can't just approach somebody this afternoon and say, will you be this kind of friend to me from here on out? That's going to be sort of intimidating. But you can, you can begin to take responsibility for being this kind of friend. Let's read and find out what Paul has to say. We'll look at him one at a time. First, let's read verses 7-9 through where we're introduced to the first two close friends that Paul has here. Tychicus and Onesimus. I love saying this guy's name. Oh my goodness. It's It's like a Dr. Seuss name. Tychicus. I encourage you to just say that. Over and over today. It just... I just like that with certain words. Certain words, I just love to say them over and over again, and I do. I just say them, Tychicus, Tychicus, Tychicus. It just makes me happy saying it. Tychicus. It's hard to move on to Will. (laughs) Will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, and they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So let's break this down. First, you have Tychicus. He describes as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. And he is sent to do what? He is sent to tell the Colossians all about Paul's activities. He is sent so that they may know how he is. And he is sent that he may encourage your hearts. And then Onesimus, who is described as a faithful and beloved brother. And he is also, we learn, a Colossian. Which is what Paul means when he says he is one of you. And then together, what are they going to do? Tychicus and Onesimus together are sent to tell Paul says, of everything that has taken place in Rome. So now let's break it down even further and look at him one at a time. First, Tychicus. We first hear of him in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. In Colossians, we learn that he is going to be Paul's special envoy or messenger. And if we read where he shows up in Paul's other letters, we find that this is his normal relationship to Paul. That is who he is to Paul. He is Paul's personal messenger. He is Paul's personal envoy. For example, in Paul's letter to Titus, who is in Crete, in chapter 3, verse 12, he says that he plans to send Tychicus to him. At the end of 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 12, He tells Timothy that he has already sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And then Ephesians 6.21, Paul says something very similar to what we read here in Colossians 4.7. He says in Ephesians 6, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother 
and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. So that is who he is, and that is what he does for Paul. Along with this letter of Colossians that Tychicus is going to deliver, he's going to have, we know, a couple other letters that are tucked in his coat. He's going to have the letter to the Ephesians. And he's also going to have the letter to Philemon. And he's going to have with him and going to deliver the man to Philemon that his letter to Philemon is about. Namely, Philemon's runaway slave Onesimus. And by the way, that is sure to be a very sensitive reconciliation that is going to require a lot of wisdom and tact. And Tychicus is Paul's man for that job. So, we can surmise that Paul trusts this man. He trusts him. He's a close friend that he can trust. Think about how many people that you would trust in this way. Who would you trust to tell others all about you? Think about the friends you have in your life. You may have some people or some friends that you would not want to tell others all about you. But imagine giving this kind of license to one of your friends. Go, and I just trust what you're going to say and how you're going to represent me and what's going on here in the ministry. We know each other that well, and so I want you to just, just, just tell them everything there is to know about me and about the activities that are taking place here in Rome. How many people would you trust enough to encourage the hearts of people you love? Because that's what Paul also entrusts Tychicus to do. I want you to go to these people that I love, and I want you to encourage their hearts. And so Paul tells them, I'm sending this man He's going to tell you about everything that's going on with me in the ministry. Which, of course, they love Paul. They want to know what's happening. And he's going to come and, I'm sure, encourage your hearts. And he describes them. Can you be described this way? As a beloved brother. As a faithful minister. As a fellow servant in the Lord. Can you imagine those words being spoken of you by the Apostle Paul? This is my beloved brother. He is a faithful minister and he is a fellow servant with us in the Lord. That's the first close friend of Paul that we read about. Next is Onesimus. We learn who Onesimus is in Paul's letter to Philemon. Philemon is a godly man and he is a member of the Colossian church. He is also a slave owner. And Onesimus is one of his slaves who has run away and he has wound up in Rome. Now again, I said this a couple weeks ago, but say it briefly today. 
the slavery that existed in the first century here is very different from the slavery that existed in our country. Not to say that this slavery was right or that God thought it was right, but very different and I would say better in many ways than the slavery that existed in this country. As well, remember that Scripture, though it does not call for the abolition of the slavery and servitude that was taking place in the first century, that does not equal an endorsement from God on slavery in the first century. Because the Bible, rather than speak to all the cultural things that are wrong, which it doesn't do, it gives the truth and principles necessary to please God and live the Christian life, and the wrong things that are happening in a culture work themselves out when God's Word and principles are applied to the Christian life. I think it is clear that Philemon, when we read the letter of Philemon, which we're not going to read the letter this morning, but I think it's clear, you could do this on your own, that Philemon was a good and a godly man, I suspect that he treated Onesimus very well. I suspect he was like a member of the family as many slaves of Christians were in this context and even later. I also suspect suspect that, Onesim, that, that Philemon shared the Gospel with Onesimus and sought to convert him and win him to Christ as a good and godly man with someone in his household, I think would do. I suspect that Philemon was in anguish when Onesimus ran away from him. And I suspect that Philemon prayed for Onesimus while he was away. Now you've got to read the book of Philemon and see if you come out with those same suspicions. But I think they're very reasonable for this godly man Philemon, when we read the way that Paul appeals to him and writes to him and talks to him and in his reputation that clearly precedes him in the Colossian church. So I think he cared about Onesimus. I think he treated him well. I think he loved him and wanted him to come to Christ. I think he probably shared the Gospel with him and was upset and questioned why he left and why he ran away. And I think he probably prayed for him while he was gone. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because where did Onesimus run away to? Rome. And who did he wind up meeting in Rome? Paul. And what happened to Onesimus when he met Paul? What did he hear again? The Gospel. Or if you don't think he ever heard it the first time, the Gospel. And what happened to him in Rome? He was converted. So Onesimus becomes a Christian in Rome with Paul after running away from his Christian owner. Listen to Paul's words in Philemon. I'll just read a few of them in chapter 1, the only chapter. Verses 8-16. through 16. Listen to what Paul says to Onesimus. The news he brings him. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, 
I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. This is how Paul talks about people that he wins to Christ. Like his spiritual children. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant or slave, but more than a bond servant as a beloved brother. So clearly he's been converted. Especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here is Onesimus now described by Paul as a faithful and beloved brother. So here we see, remember, we're going to see illustrations of faithful friendship. And we're going to see illustrations of the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you read about Onesimus coming up, and you read other parts of the Bible and find out who is this guy, and listen to how Paul speaks of him, you find here a testimony. And an illustration of what the Gospel can do to a man. Running from God. Running from Christianity. Running from the Gospel. And winds up running straight into Christ. And now going back. Back to His owner. Back to His church. As not a mere slave or bondservant, but as what? A beloved brother in Christ. The Gospel transforms people. The Gospel changes everything. Don't you grow tired sometimes of praying for some people that you want to come to know Christ? I mean, you tried and tried and tried and it just gets to a point sometimes in your mind and heart where it feels pointless or it feels useless or it, it's it's not going to happen. Get fatalistic about it. And we're encouraged by illustrations like this, right? We're encouraged. So here's a man who ran, was lost, and ended up what? Running straight to Christ. We pray that for people that we love. No matter how bad it may look, pray they'd run straight. Christ. Oh, you're running. You think you're running away. We pray they're running right where God wants them. But the testimony here, Onesimus is, of the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we come to verses 10 and 11. Read about three more close friends of Paul. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. 
and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So three men, Aristarchus and Mark and Justice, they are all men of the circumcision, Paul says, and they are, he says, fellow workers for the kingdom of God who have been a comfort to Paul. These are, Paul said in verse 11b, the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. What does Paul mean when he says these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God? What Paul means is that of all the Christians that are here with me and ministering to me and alongside me, there are only, aside from me, three other Jews. And here they are. Aristarchus and Mark and Justice. Who changed his name from Jesus. Good call. Like If you were named Jesus and you became a Christian, you just can't keep that name. You just can't keep that name. You've got to change it. Justice. So four Jews, including Paul, we find in these verses, in close fellowship and friendship with five Gentiles. And that's something to think about. Four Christian Jews embracing five Christian Gentiles. There were few uh, relational walls of hostility in this culture that were bigger or seemingly more insurmountable than the wall between Jews and Gentiles. Especially from a Jew's perspective. So to find these men embracing one another and encouraging one another and comforting one another and loving one another is, again, another illustration of the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because these men should not be friends. These men should not be family. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is nothing else to unite these men as friends. No other commonality other than Christ. Everything would be working against this friendship. And yet, they're able to have true friendship. Not superficial friendship, but true friendship. True sacrificing for one another. And caring for one another. Loving one another. Gentiles would have every excuse to avoid Jews. Let alone a Christian Gentile to avoid a Christian Jew who is in prison most likely going to be executed. And yet here these Gentiles are going to visit who? Paul. The Jew. 
Why? Because He is their what? Their brother. He's family. No walls of hostility between them. An illustration. The power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We meet a man we've heard a, or, or, or hear about a man that we've already heard a lot about in verses 12 and 13. Epaphras. Epaphras. Paul mentions him here. He's a, also a Colossian. He's one of them who is, what does Paul say? Always struggling in prayer and working hard for the Colossians. And he says, Epaphras sends his greetings to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 says about Epaphras, just as you learned it, that's the Gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So remember who Epaphras is. Epaphras, most commentators believe, is a man who was converted under Paul's ministry and became an evangelist in the Lycus Valley where this church of Colossae is and two other churches as well. Shared the Gospel in those communities and started churches in those communities. Specifically here, the church in Colossae where he was probably viewed as the founding pastor of this church. And he has made his way all the way to Rome to talk to Paul about issues and problems that are taking place back home. And that's what prompts Paul's letter to the Colossians. And what is Epaphras doing while he's away from his church family? Well, Paul tells us here, he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And then he says this, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Such a good pastor, Epaphras is. What a good pastor. He's away from his church family. And what is he doing? Struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Now, some of you along with me have already in, in weeks past maybe been convicted about your prayer life after reading the example of prayer in Colossians and reading the instruction about prayer in Colossians. But think about those who you love. Think about your friendships. Those that you care for. What do you do for them when you're away from them? What's the example of Epaphras? To pray for them. To pray for them. But I do think that this is something more than a sort of token prayer. It's like another level, right? You know what the token prayer is. And the token prayer is a good prayer. It's prayer. Someone comes to your mind, right, that you love or know or care about. Maybe they come to your mind at a specific hour when you know that they're going in for an interview or they're 
uh, they're going in for surgery or they're going to confront a relative or, or, or whatever the case may be and you're, you're prompted to pray for them and you, you pray quickly for them. And there are those kinds of prayers that you sort of offer up and it's quick and it's one and done and then you're on with your day or maybe in the evening you come back. But there's something different. It's like another level. Those prayers are good. And there's another level I think that's described here. Another sort of prayer ministry that takes place on behalf of those people who you love, your close friends, when you're not with them. And it is this always struggling in prayer. And that's Epaphras. That's Epaphras. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras, while he's away from this church family that he loves, he wants them to mature in Christ. And he wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are saved. That's what he means about assurance. He wants them to know that. And that's evident to Paul. Now, how does Paul know that? Paul knows that because he sees and hears, evidently, Epaphras struggling in prayer for them. So whenever they pray together, apparently this, this comes up. Whenever they have conversation, apparently this comes up. So he's in, he's in anguish over it. Some of you know what this is. You've experienced this. You have certain people that have very special places in your heart is maybe a way that we describe it. And there are at all times or maybe in certain seasons when you know they're really going through things, there, there are times where they are really never absent from your thoughts. It's very rarely that they're, they're, not, they're not back there. You know, we're all always thinking about many things at the same time. And they're just, it's just always, always there. And you love them and you care about them. Well, I think a challenge here is, is not just to think, but to make that distinction between thinking and praying. Thinking and praying. I've never understood what is helpful about a card that says, thinking of you. Thank you. It's, I mean, I think about all kinds of things. I think about terrible things, and right, which is it? Like, are you thinking terrible thoughts? I need more. Qualify that, please. But are you thinking of me? Or praying for me. A Christian doesn't just think about people; we pray for people. So make that distinction for those people that you're maybe struggling in thought over. But is it actually is it actually turning vertical and not just horizontal? And you're praying. You're going to God on their behalf. And you're expressing this not just to yourself, but you're expressing this directionally to God and saying, God, this is my concern and this is, this is what's happening and please help and give me wisdom and, and, and what should I do and, and give me insight and, and, and lead them and love them and comfort them and encourage them. It's just kind of struggling, this anguish that we're in that Paul was so familiar with and talks about. He says, I see that in your pastor Epaphras. He is struggling for you in that way. He is an illustration. An illustration of a faithful friend. And he, among all these people mentioned here, is a faithful friend to Paul and to the Colossians. He's a link, right? He's a mutual friend to both of them. And then verse 14. Jackson, I want you to go sit in the back, please. I'm sorry to do that. Verse 14 of Colossians chapter 4. We're introduced to the two last before next week. Luke, the beloved physician, 
greets you, as does Demas. So when we read these names, we should ask ourselves, who are these men? What else do the Scriptures have to say? We don't want to import things in this text from outside the Bible, but let's take what we know about Luke first from Scripture and understand what Paul means when he mentions that Luke is there with them and that Luke is sending greetings and love and concern to the Colossians. Well, Luke, many of you know who Luke is. He is the, we may call him the beloved physician. He's a medical doctor. He is Paul's, apparently, as you read Paul's letters, he is Paul's personal physician. He is his own personal doctor. And he will be with Paul to the very end. The last letter that we have that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Think of this verse with the verse that we're reading here some 10 years before Paul dies, what we read today. But some 10 years later, Paul will write his very last letter to Timothy. And he'll say these words about Luke. And how, how loaded are these words? Luke alone is with me. Now, not everyone had abandoned Paul. Some had left for very good reasons. But many had abandoned Paul. Many had left him. He named some. But who was with Paul down to the very end? His personal physician. His doctor. Who wrote the Gospel, according to Luke? Who wrote a sequel? Acts? early history of the first century church, Luke, the beloved physician, was with Paul to the very end. Now think about this, because why? Why, if Paul appears to be in good health for his whole life, and he does, he describes a thorn in the flesh that some think was a physical ailment, but maybe, we really don't know. But Paul appears to be in fairly good physical health throughout his entire ministry. Seems to have plenty of physical strength and vigor and and gets quite a bit accomplished. So, I asked myself the question, why was it necessary for Paul to have a doctor with him throughout his ministry? And I thought of 2 Corinthians 11 verses 23-28, through 28, when Paul said, describing his life, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And who was alongside him for much of those experiences? Luke. Luke. I don't think it's a stretch after reading that text to deduce that Paul required medical attention frequently in his ministry. And who was the man that cared for his body? Luke. Who bandaged him up? Who kept his body going? Kept him as healthy as he could be so that he could keep ministering the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Luke. Another illustration of faithful friendship. In conclusion, let's look more closely at two of the men mentioned in this text. Mark and Demas. I'd like to say a few more words about these two men, and I think you'll find it encouraging in the end. We've seen illustrations of faithful friendship. We have seen illustrations of the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and sadly, there is also in these verses an illustration of unfaithful friendship. And there is an illustration of the alluring power of the world. Verse 14, Demas is mentioned as being with Paul. And Paul sends his greeting but sadly, this is not Scripture's last word about Demas. The sad words come from Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy 4.10 where he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now that probably means that Demas is not a faithful brother in Christ. For Paul to mention Demas at the end of his letter and to mention him in this way and to say that Demas is in love, very strong words, with the present world and has another strong word, deserted me, probably doesn't mean that Demas has just needed a break and has taken a vacation. But rather, that he has turned his back on Paul, certainly, but most likely he's turned his back on Christ is what Paul is saying. He's deserted me, he's abandoned me, and his reason is that he is, and you can't do this and love Jesus at the same time, the Scriptures say. He is in love with the present world. But here in Colossians, that hasn't happened yet. He's one of the friends that is mentioned with Paul. Now that's sobering. 
Because wouldn't you tend to think that it would be impossible for someone this intimately connected with the Apostle Paul to fall away from Christ? But Demas did. Demas did. These kinds of verses sober us up to keeping watch over our own souls and examining ourselves to follow Christ wholeheartedly, to fight sin, to pursue holiness, to not play games in our relationship with God. If Demas can be that close to the man who wrote most of the New Testament, and he can turn his back on him and turn his back on the ministry, if he can be enlightened and in that and experiencing the joys that come with the fellowship of Christians, and he can walk away from all of that, what does that mean for us in this church? There's a warning for us to take. But let's not end with Demas. Alright, so let's look at two men who are in contrast here. Because one seems to start well and end badly, but the other has a bad go, but seems to end really well. And that's Mark. That's Mark. Look back again at verse 10. And Mark, the cousin or nephew, there's some discrepancy there, if he was cousin or nephew, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and then in parenthesis, he says, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, we should ask ourselves a question when we read that. Why would the Colossians need special instructions to welcome Mark? I mean, you know who Mark is. I'm sure they know who Mark is. He wrote the Gospel according to Mark. This man is a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Why would Paul need to give special instructions to the Colossian church to welcome Mark? Isn't Mark a sort of celebrity amongst Christians in the first century? He's well known and he is respected by the church. Well, we need to remember the relationship between Paul and Mark. Mark accompanied Paul, we learn from the book of Acts. Mark was a ministry partner to Paul on his first missionary journey. And then Mark one day got up and deserted Paul. And later on, Paul and Barnabas are hooked up in ministry. And Barnabas says, let's get Mark to come along with us. And do you remember what happened? And Paul said, no. Why? Because Mark's a, a deserter. He left me. He left the ministry. I don't want anything to do with Mark. And the disagreement was so sharp that Paul said to Barnabas, if you, if you bring your cousin Mark along, count me out. We part ways now over Mark. That's pretty, that's pretty harsh. And what happened? They did. Paul and Barnabas split up and Paul took Silas as his new ministry partner. Acts chapter 13, 
Verse 13, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So that's what happened. And then here's the disagreement in chapter 15 of Acts, verse 37 and following. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark, who's his cousin or nephew. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. But now, look at Mark. This is the opposite of Demas. We see how Demas ends up. We see where Mark was, but now, hear what Paul says about Mark. He's with him. And in his last letter to Timothy, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 11, remember, these are the, the end of Paul's life. And Paul says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Wow. You see the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You see the transformation, the reconciliation that's taken place. Clearly a change in Paul or a change in Mark. They're being brought together. There arose back in Acts chapter 15 such a sharp disagreement that Paul was saying, get Mark. Don't even let Mark near me. I'm not doing ministry with him. And then at the end of his life, something has happened to where Paul says, Timothy, get Mark. And bring Mark with you because he is so useful to me for ministry. And this is the good honorable kind of usefulness that Christians have in God's service. So now Mark is ministering to Paul and on Paul's behalf. So some have left Paul, we learn, but some have returned. How is it that this Slave Onesimus is now a brother to his master. How is it that this man Mark who failed is now a close ministry partner to Paul? How is it that these people, Jews and Gentiles, who are so dramatically different, love one another from the heart? And the answer, of course, is that Jesus Christ changes every life He touches. The transforming power of Jesus Christ. He turns us, Lord willing, into these kinds of faithful brothers and sisters and these kinds of faithful friends. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the Word that You've given us to feed on today. And we pray that the conviction or encouragement that may have begun through the preaching of Your Word would now be carried into fruition throughout our day and week. We pray that You would remind us of these words and work these words 
deeply into our hearts and that we would become more honorable vessels for You because of them. Be glorified, Father, in the hearts of Your people. Lord, do this work so that our lives this week would be consistent with what's come out of our mouths this morning. God, keep us from being a people who profess You and praise You with our lips, but with hearts that are far from You. Use Your Word to nourish us in a way that we please You all week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.